This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Yes, it certainly is. It is five past 12 here on the ABC right across Western Australia. Hello. How are you this afternoon? And some good news. There has been a quite a bit of rain about in parts of the north. I mean, a thousand millimetres of rain in the Kimberley since the beginning of November. And that, as you can imagine, making for some pretty happy station owners in the north. And it hasn't only fallen in the Kimberley. The rain has also finally fallen in parts of the southern rangelands. You know, we've got yabbies in the creek and and the dogs take themselves off for a swim every day and, and so much bird life. So we are renowned for our birds out here at Kirkalocker and, and it's um, teeming with life at the moment after the rains. More from Kirkalocker after half past 12 today. And also, should insuring livestock transactions be compulsory? The prices being paid for cattle and sheep are so high at the moment, which is great news if you're selling, but it also creates more risk. And you'll hear from an agent who thinks insurance should be a must. That's a little later here on the Country Hour, six past 12. And all has been revealed. The Premier, Mark McGowan, has announced the details of his new look cabinet. Uh, Firstly, the Premier taking on the role of State Treasurer in this new ministry. And as far as the, I guess, the the important portfolios go from this program's perspective anyway, the ones of note are the Minister for Mines and Petroleum and Energy is Bill Johnston, Rita Safiotti has Transport, Planning and Ports, Dave Kelly has Water and Forestry, Amber Jade Sanderson takes on Environment and Climate Action, Don Punch has been assigned fisheries and Alana McTiernan keeps agriculture and food, regional development and is also the minister assisting the Minister for State Development for hydrogen. Alana McTiernan, congratulations. How important was it for you to keep agriculture? Well, Belinda, it was um, really the, the my big reasons, I guess, for going around again and deciding that, you know, I wanted to uh, uh, keep going uh, were really the opportunities to do things in agriculture and particularly around building that climate resilience for uh, WA agriculture and, of course, to uh, continue the work in um, in the new hydrogen industry, which is a pretty exciting opportunity for regional uh, regional Western Australia. So they were, the, I guess, the two big motivations um, that I had for saying, yep, putting my hand up uh, to go around again. And, uh, and uh, in both of those areas, I really feel now I can, uh, I can hit the ground running. We've been doing an enormous amount of work over the last four years. And uh, we've got some uh, significant election commitments and resource uh, to be able to do some, uh, I think, really progressive stuff in this space. Look, across a number of different sectors, the top priority is 
the labour shortage. So trying to get the crops in and then the crops off. And that's really coming to a head for, well, a couple of industries we've spoken to even this week. Um, the grain sector, for example, just about, and some already started with the seeding and worried about getting labour for that job. And then later in the year for the harvest, Roger Fowle from the big fruit company Fruticol also concerned about this issue. Where does that sit as a priority for you, this labour shortage oh, well, situation? Certainly we'll, we'll continue the work we've been doing, really, Belinda, on this for the last year. You know, we've recognised that, you know, where we've become so dependent on uh, international labour, we have a vulnerability um, and uh, we uh, we have got a whole schedule of uh, of planes uh, lined up for the uh, for the next few months uh, to bring it, be bringing labour in now. From uh, where a lot of that is, sorry. From where this is the Pacific Islanders. Yeah, this is so we're bringing. I think the next uh, uh, loads of people are coming from uh, possibly Fiji, uh, Tonga, and then uh, more from Vanuatu. Uh, so, you know, we're saying to growers, you know, as you tell us uh, what you want, sign up to this arrangement. We're, work, we're paying, obviously, for the, to stand up these special quarantine hotels um, for those. Um, and, um, you know, look, and we hope that um, it might not be that long before we have uh, a full travel bubble with New Zealand. You know, that might, that's done at a federal level, obviously. Um uh, but we're not going to be able to get overseas labour in, I wouldn't have thought, uh, at least for the next six months. So we just have to accept that that's the reality. We've got to, we will look forward now and, and seeing if we can set, and like we did last season with our um, uh, tra- harvesting training, we'll have, you know, we'll look at um, getting more people trained up uh, in uh, header operations, etc. Um, and it is going to be a struggle, but we can't, you know, we'll keep doing the training programs. We'll keep, our subsidies are still going. I think we've, um, we've probably spent, um, over a million, uh, so far on, uh, the subsidies for, uh, farm, uh, farm labour, paying their accommodation and travel costs. Uh, that's, um, still on the table. We've still got our unit, uh, working with, um, industry. Um, bringing in, uh, aggregating this demand and bringing in these um, workers from the, the South Pacific. But I think it's pretty clear, Belinda, from the result at the election that people in Western Australia, including people uh, overwhelmingly in regional Western Australia, have prioritised uh, keeping the community safe. Now, the government flagged a significant investment in the oat industry in the lead-up to the election. Can you reveal any more detail of that investment, that plan for the oat industry going forward? Uh, Look, I really uh, love this one because it it really irked me that, you know, we are the biggest grower, uh, we are the biggest uh, state, um, sorry, we, we grow the most oats, and we grow the best quality oats. We grow overwhelmingly food-grade oats, and yet uh, the breeding programs uh, were in the eastern states. So what we're wanting to do, this money will be, uh, part of it will be used for the um, R&D, for the breeding, for the agronomy. So there'll be that part of it. I think we've got to do 
you know, we've got to do a lot more in that space to ensure um, oats uh, are competitive. And that um, will be taken also, on by Intergrain, that sort of the breeding side of things? Is that where most of that will be done? Well, we're, we're, in, discussions on, uh, we're in discussions on that. Um, but I think, you know, that was one of the reasons why we were so keen not to sell Intergrain as... Uh, was on the uh, on the table when we came into government last time. We stopped that sale to keep that going and keep it focused on WA needs. So that's we're working on that. But we also part of this will be on developing the process product because the you know the value add given our high quality food grade oats, the value that we can add um, if we get into processing whether it's oat milk or um, all the nutraceuticals now that are being produced out of oats as well as uh, the work that Aged's been doing, you know, the um, um, developing new uh, oat-based uh, rice, oat-based noodles. You know, it's a fantastic opportunity to really say, like, you know, we should be the premium um, oat processor uh, and research uh, uh, in Australia, and I think this money is going to go uh, allow us to do that. On ABC WA, this is the Country Hour and catching up with Alana McTiernan, who, well, the Cabinet and uh, the portfolios have been announced now, and Alana McTiernan keeping agriculture and food, regional development, and also looking into hydrogen. Uh, and discussing the priorities for the ag portfolio, I guess, for the next four years under the Labor government. You can be part of the conversation too on the text 0448922604. Maybe shoot through what you think the priority should be for agriculture going forward. Alana McTiernan, pastoralists in the north of the state say a water allocation plan for the Fitzroy River would transform the northern cattle industry and create economic opportunities. Do you have plans to pick up on that election promise from the previous election to stimulate economic development in the north. Yeah, we um, we currently have out for uh, comment uh, a proposal that would see up to uh, three hundred gigalitres um, uh, released uh, for development in the uh, in the Fitzroy. Um, I, I think you know it's pretty clear that you know we, um, as we have said right from the outset, this is a complex area because there are a lot of important environmental and, and cultural considerations there uh, in the Fitzroy uh, in the Fitzroy River. Um, but we um, we have released our um, our. A, a plan uh, that shows the, you know, potentially 300 uh, uh, gigalitres of water being available. Now that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty huge. That's uh, uh, a very significant um, volume of uh, of water. Um, so we we just need to. I think this is really important. We've got to understand. There's not just um, the pastoralists up there. There is also the Aboriginal interests, and we're we're pretty keen under our scheme. The, our, our proposals to date, a uh, hundred gigalitres of that would go uh, for the uh, traditional owners to be engaged in the economic development. And you know we're seeing increasing sophistication in in those communities who want to be able to be part of the economic um, fabric. They've about 67% of the region and I think their general view is that they would like 
uh, to have more of an economic stake. Just picking up on the two points, you mentioned right at the top the sort of the key reasons right why you wanted to maintain uh, and keep going for the next four years is climate resilience and also the hydrogen aspect. What is the arrangement with hydrogen, just looking at your role, that one of the roles you're taking on, assisting the State Development Minister for Hydrogen? What does that mean? Well, it's actually, I think it, it, it's actually currently titled as, as the Minister for Hydrogen Industries or Hydrogen Industries. So what, what it means, it's the work effectively I have been doing uh, to date. I started off, uh, as you would know, I was assisting the Premier in that state development role and we developed through the regional development portfolio uh, a hydrogen unit and we then transferred that hydrogen unit uh, to uh, the state development part the department jetsy so what basically we need to do is um, identify the opportunities we've uh, currently got uh, um, 30 projects being seriously talked about uh, across the state we've funded uh, uh, a variety of feasibility studies we've made capital investments into uh, four or five different projects to date um, so this will be doing more working out what it is we need to do um, and a lot of it will be around land tenure. I think that's going to be one of the big issues uh, going forward. How do we uh, provide an appropriate vehicle? Because the scale, Belinda, of some of these projects, you know, the, uh, the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, for example, north of Port Hedland, you know, it's the size of uh, Palestine, the size of an independent nation. You know, the one being talked about at UCLA is even uh, even bigger. So there are massive sort of issues, you know, and this is a, uh, and we know that FMG, um, Andrew Forrest um, and a variety of others are very keen to um, take some pastoral lands and, um, and, uh, use those for uh, renewable hydrogen to the generation of the renewable energy that will drive that. So we, we've uh, started work on what that would look like, what would be the new tenure arrangements that would need to do, how do we uh, make this um, equitably available. Um, so that's um, important work that we have to do to get, because the scale of this thing is potentially so large, uh, we really need um, to be focusing on some new new tenure arrangements. And, of course, we've got the development uh, that we're our hydrogen precinct at Okaji that we're hoping to uh, get underway um, um, during this uh, during this term of government. And just looking at the, the New Look Parliament, um, very often it's good to debate agricultural policy in the parliament before it's legislated, but just having a look at the dominance of the Labor members in both houses, will ag policy be tested to the same extent that it has in the past? Well, to be totally honest, Belinda, I mean, I, I'd, I'd urge you to go back and have a look over what happened in the parliament for the last four years. I, d I doubt if you'd find that there had been very much intelligent debate um, on agricultural policy. And quite frankly, I mean, in seat by seat, people have looked at, you know, who's best going to represent us. And, you know, they've made the determination that it is 
uh, it is Labor people that they believe are best going to uh, represent them and take them forward. So, I, look, I, I'd have to say, you know, being completely honest, I don't think there was a great deal um, of um, powerful debate that went on over agriculture. We had some very, very sterile stereotyping of what um, farming is all about, you know, a fight against the city and a fight against, you know, latte drinkers, which is just a completely... Um, uh, unproductive uh, focus for uh, for agricultural policy. So, I mean, I am absolutely determined uh, that we uh, uh, we really get the best out of our uh, our farming. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm wanting to go out as I did last time, but this time, um, uh, you know, because we'll be hitting the ground running, we want to get all the grower groups involved. Uh, we know that there's great groups of progressive farmers that, you know, are wanting to do new and exciting things, and uh, we are here to uh, we are here to help them. So, I'm going to be, for example, uh, I'm uh, in uh, April. Um, I'll be setting up a, a forum on the carbon farming um, uh, land restoration opportunities. Um, in um, we'll be doing that in Muresk in the second half of. Uh, of April and, and really getting industry and players working with us. We've got our, we've got a new fund uh, that was announced during the election, the Climate Resilience Fund, that's going to uh, uh, help, that will add to some of the projects that we've already started uh, to really start looking at how we build uh, this climate resistant, uh, resilience, how do we deal with carbon emissions, how we get um, to a position which we know National Farmers Federation um, agree with, which is you know net zero emissions. MLA is saying by as early as 2030. Um, um, and if that's the aspiration, and I think it's an important aspiration, well, we've got to get cracking on it. Elena McTiernan, congratulations again. Thanks for being part of the country out today. Thank you very much. Alana McTiernan and the portfolios have been handed out. Alana McTiernan maintains agriculture and food, regional development, and the new one for her is the minister assisting the Minister for State Development for Hydrogen Industries. This is the Country Hour on ABC WA. It is 23 past 12. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a couple of texts through. You can shoot one through too. The number is 0448922604. Rowan in Pingarup says, it's got me beat how Alana McTiernan has kept her portfolio. The way she handled herself throughout the live export crisis was deplorable, says Rowan. A Robert in Mora, so we have to listen to her Aminar and Stutter and Stammer for another four years. This from Anonymous. Strap yourself in, Broadacre and Rangelands farmers, the one minister position we needed to change. Uh, This from Sebastian. Since Alana has the ministerial portfolio again, much to every farmer's chagrin, uh, let's hope this time she actually sets foot on an actual farm or sees something like a shearing shed in action or visits a Catanning sheep sale or actually sees what an empty dam looks like. Just spending weekends in her holiday home in Albany does not cut it as visiting the regions, says Sebastian. Do you agree with Sebastian? I wonder if the minister's been to your town, your community, your farm or a meeting. She 
does seem to get around a bit. And I only know that because very often we're trying to get in touch with her and she's either on a plane travelling somewhere or in another part of Western Australia. Has she been to your place? Let me know on the text. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. It is 25 past 12. An update from the newsroom shortly, then off to the Bureau of Meteorology. First up, though, I know you've been hearing about this shortage of workers on farms and just how stressful that is for grain growers just right before seeding at the moment. Peter Horwood farms just west of Minganew in WA's Midwest. He's short one staff member for seeding this year. He's also frustrated because the work he does have, who's from France, would like to stay in Australia permanently. But Peter says the paperwork for that to happen is drawn out and confusing and there are no guarantees. We're short of one staff member. Normally we pick up two backpackers. Last year when COVID struck, we made the decision to keep one of our backpackers on and he's indicated to us he would like to become Oh, a resident, I'm not sure of the terminology, but uh, we're going through it. It is a little bit difficult. It would be very good if the powers to be, I think if the federal government, would actually free the process up and make it a lot easier in the short term so we can get these people and keep them in Australia if they want to become residents because they're good people and they want to work and we need them. And it's not the answer to everyone's solution, everyone's problems, but it definitely will help some. And I know we've got one, our neighbour back at Strawberry, they had a couple last year and they wanted to do exactly the same. Where they are at the moment, I'm not sure. But there's two examples with basically two neighbours. So just tell me more about the uh, backpacker that became your permanent uh, employee. Are they skilled and where are they from? Um, yeah, our bloke, he's a boilermaker, he's from France. We picked him up actually last year we had three coming in from Europe when COVID hit due to medical concerns. We cancelled them all and paid their airfares out and picked some up in Australia and um, quarantined them on the way in, even before the government made you quarantine. And he's been with us ever since because we were concerned about labour going forward and basically have decided to keep someone, a second person on, well, third person on full time. So he wants to stay and you want to keep him. It's just the, uh, what would it be, the visa rules where he has to, to move on. It must be quite a, a process to be trying to wade through, Pete. Yes, it is. And actually, just thinking again, a farm consultant has just contacted us because they've got another client as well. She's a German bird. I don't know where she's from and where the client's from. But there's a third one that wanting to sponsor someone into Australia. Yeah, it's a process. You know, in this thing, you know, it'd be great if uh, Melissa Price would, uh, would actually grab it, shake it and make it happen for us because it'd be really beneficial for people in their electorate. So that's what you need. It needs to be expedited, in your opinion. ASAP. You are short one person going into seating. Uh, do you hold out any hope that you'll fill that position or are you just going to get through short-staffed? <laughs> well... We're, we haven't really chased it solidly. We're just cutting out certain jobs we're doing. There's certain things that are not going to get done and certain things are going to get done. We've made it, you know, we've got a plan to get through it, but if we can pick someone up, we will. 
Minganew Farmer Peter Horwood with Joe Prendergast. 28 past 12, you are off to the Pilbara now where the finish line is in sight for the $350 million Ashburton Salt Project. It's 40 kilometres south of Onslow and the project's owned by German fertiliser giant K&S Group which plans to export 4.5 million tonnes of salt each year, mainly targeting the Asian markets. Australia Manager Director Gerrit Goddicke thinks the project will have made its final investment decision by the end of the year. Yeah, the Ashburton Salt Project has been going on ever since 2016 and we have spent the last years in conducting all the required uh, environmental studies. Finally this year, uh, having uh, the finish line in sight, so we hope to wrap uh, this part of the project up until the end of the year, somewhere around that. Wonderful. So when are you hoping work will begin? Um, it all depends on uh, getting over uh, a few hurdles that we have to do, such as getting the environmental approvals, uh, getting the mining lease approved uh, and such things. And obviously it all depends on a positive final investment decision. But we are looking at doing that uh, in a timely manner after receiving those approvals. And as you say, it has been quite a long time in the works. What have been the main challenges along the way? Um there's quite a large amount of environmental studies that have to, had to be done and uh, those studies uh, require time. You need to cover seasonalities. You need to, uh, for example, study migratory birds not just one time of the year. You need to come over and over again in order to, to get things right. So that took time to do. You said you'd been consulting with the community. What were the main issues that they sort of had with the project that you've had to work around or ensure those concerns are dealt with? So basically two, two parts of, uh, to, to the answer of the question. So the, the one thing is uh, from the environmental side, um, we really got the strong feedback that um, we should try to avoid dredging as, as much as possible and we have uh, uh, done that as part of the project from the beginning. And then more on the social side, it's really um, get to the point that, that you don't do a FIFO operations and we really, really want to base our workforce locally. Um, and avoid that. And uh, the other thing is, I think, is just uh, don't promise things that you cannot hold. And um, with that local workforce, have you made it so that it won't be FIFO, that it will be local workforce? Yes, that's, that's our aim. Uh, for the operational stage of the project, we want people to be based here in the region and come to work every day. KNS Australia Managing Director Garrett Goddicke speaking with Louise Moylan at a community information session in Onslow. And if that project goes ahead, it's expected to create 270 jobs in construction and then 80 local jobs uh, that will not be FIFO. 29 to 1 and Jonathan Beale is here with an update from the newsroom. Thanks, Belinda. The WA Premier has appointed himself Treasurer as part of a range of changes to his ministry. Mark McGowan takes over from Ben Wyatt, who retired at last last weekend's election. Mr McGowan says it's not uncommon for Premiers to also take control of the state's finances. He says he chose not to promote the Health Minister to the Treasurer's role due to Roger Cook's focus on the coronavirus pandemic. ABC election analyst Anthony Green has declared Labor has won the seat of 
Netherlands. With more than 70% of the vote counted, the Liberals' Bill Marmion has been defeated by Labor's Katrina Stratton. Netherlands has long been Liberal heartland and has been represented by two former Liberal premiers, Sir Charles Court and his son Richard. And the federal government has rammed its watered-down industrial relations legislation through the Senate. It was forced to gut the bill after facing opposition from crucial crossbenchers. The government's now only pursuing some of its proposed changes, including ensuring employers would have to offer casual workers a full-time contract after one year of consistent hours. The bill will now return to the House of Representatives. More news coming up, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you so much, Jonathan. 28 to 1. The WA Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Radio WA. Being a Thursday, you are off to Mount Barker just before the news at one for a wrap of the cattle market. Tracy Kilner along with those details. Also, wondering about uh, livestock insurance as a measure. What do you think of that idea in the transaction when you sell sort of cattle or sheep and having that insurance that once the livestock leaves your place that you're sort of covered to get that money? that you're owed, which would be quite a lot of money because cattle and sheep worth quite a lot of money at the moment. And some glorious rain around some parts of Western Australia. Tell you more about that shortly. First, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. And Gianni Colangelo, what's happening in northern and eastern parts? Is it still raining? Because we've had a few flood watches, well, in the Kimberley anyway. Yes, we have had a few flood watches and warnings. Um, We are sitting at uh, just above minor flooding uh, in a number of markers through the Fitzroy catchment. Um, We have had a decent drop of rainfall. I know you read out the rainfall figures uh, after I hop off, but a couple of of high flyers. uh, We did see 50-odd mil to 80 mil um, over some parts of the inland Kimberley there over the last 24-hour period. We are expecting uh, those higher rainfall totals to persist for today, tomorrow and uh, Saturday and start to ease once we uh, head past the weekend. Um, So a good likelihood that will maintain a lot of of those um, of those river levels over the Kimberley um, and uh, the peak of those rainfall conditions should be Saturday approximately um, as we head over the next couple of days. That's the focus for the rainfall around the state. Um, we do have some very light uh, showers approaching the south coast. Uh, but we'll have to wait a number of days um, to see those. We have to basically get into Monday before we get that kind of weak front heading along the south coast, expecting um, a low number of, uh, of mills basically from Augusta to Esperance. Um, just with a, a passing front, um, which should deliver some rainfall for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday onwards. Otherwise, over the central and western parts of the state, there's actually not too much. Fairly clear skies and um, rather mild conditions uh, after we get this uh, this increase of temperatures uh, down the west coast with a uh, trough that's developing. Uh, conditions increasing into the uh, to the high 30s um, over parts of the west and southwest uh, during tomorrow and Saturday. Uh, as that trough stagnates and then shifts off, like I said, with the, with the weak front over the southwest uh, with a new working week. All right, then, and warnings, Johnny, what can you say? We've got those flood warnings uh, out for the Kimberley, um, as, was, uh, as we touched on earlier. Um, we don't have any other warnings as of yet, um, but I, I should note that it's, uh, it's actually unusually chilly 
um, in parts of the southern Kimberley and uh, and North Interior, with some temperatures reaching 15 degrees below average. So, um, yeah, that's it's just noteworthy, that one there, I've got to say. Yeah, it sure is. They might be pulling out the cardigans at this point. Yeah, putting out the cardigans, <laughs> put, them on the, put them on the cows. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> much on. for that, Johnny. Uh, thank My you for pleasure. the wrap. Appreciate it. It is 24 to 1 and now taking a look at the rainfall figures. Well, Johnny did a little bit of that too. They're really cutting your lunch here, Richard, but you can pick up where Johnny left off. Yeah, I can fight the team. That's all right. Again, most of the rain's up in the north and specifically in the Kimberley. Bedford Downs Airstrip 18. Country Downs and Curtin Airport also had 18 mils. Bidjidanga, 8. Carlton Hill, 12. Signet Bay, 9. Dampier Downs Airstrip, 49. Debisa, 85. Derby, 23. Drysdale River Station, 12. Fitzroy Crossing, 16. Fossil Downs, 32. Gibb River, 53. Jubilee Downs, 13. Columbaroo, 36. Kilto Station, 27. Kimbolton, 32. Lake Argyle Resort, 26. Leopold Downs, 56. Liveringa Station, 51. Lombardina, 17. Marion Downs, 49. Mount House Airstrip, 41. Mount Krause, 6. Mount Winifred, 22. Napier Downs, 25. Old Mornington Homestead, 16. Siddons Creek, 34. Troughton Island, 9. Truscott, 10. Udiella, 31. Warman, 22. Winjana Gorge, 47. And Yulamboo had 18. And then in the Pilbara District, Pardue had another 18 mils, so no shortage of water there. And then for the rest of the state, uh, every single part of the state, there was nothing above the dew levels. So most of the attention seems to be in that Kimberley region. And some of the rivers and the creeks are, are running pretty well after incredible rain, not only in the last 24 hours, but for this weekend, just a tiny bit further back from that as well. About 100 mils has been recorded on some properties, as you just heard, near the Gibb River Road. And the timing of that rain couldn't be better. Not only will the cattle be happy, but tourism season is about to begin. People heading north are going to be able to enjoy that Kimberley area looking nice and green and fresh. Larissa Walker and her husband Logan have been taking in tourists and local adventurers for more than five years at Ellenbray Station, so that's on the Gibb. And they've had a couple of tough seasons, but it looks like it's turning around for them because the rain just keeps coming and the Durack River is flowing beautifully. Yeah, we were pretty impressed as well when we met and saw it yesterday. Um, and to be able to put the drone up and see it from the air, it was quite an incredible sight. How good does it feel to have a start to the season like this, knowing that you're also going to be open for the tourism side of your business, which, of course, um, you had to close last year during the COVID travel restrictions? Uh, you must be feeling a bit more positive about this year than you were this time last year. Oh, absolutely. Like, we're so excited that, one, we can open up for this year and also that, you know, nature is putting on a good show. So not only for us, but all the travellers along the Gibb, like they'll get to see, you know, the Kimberley in the finest form. So who wouldn't want to come up here when it's been a phenomenal wet season? Um, so I think it's just added to it that, yeah, attracting more uh, travellers up here, which is great for us and everyone in the region. And you have had a dry few years on the Gibb there um, back in 2019 was very dry actually from memory driving along um, to your property. Uh, has it been a while since you've had a decent wet out your way? Absolutely it has. Um, 
for the first time in the time that we've been here in that 2019, we saw the bottom of the creek and we, you know, this time two years ago, or last year, um, when we had the cyclone through, it took 200 mils of rain to go from the bottom of the creek to the top of the creek, whereas yesterday we only had 30 mils of rain and all of a sudden at our station and all of a sudden we're in flood. So it just shows how much rainfall has fallen over this last wet season. Do you think, uh, Larissa, obviously the rain is very welcome, but do you think it will sort of slightly delay things with the start to the tourism season? When are you hoping to be able to to open up your doors again? Uh, We're hoping to open up when the Gib River Road opens. So we were hoping um, middle to the end of April. Um, I I don't know what Mother Nature is going to give us, um, but I certainly have faith in main roads that they'll open the road up as soon as they can. And there's a lot of cattle stations on the Gibb that have diversified into tourism. Larissa, how important to your business is uh, the tourism side of things? Uh, It is really important. Um, For us, you know, the cattle side of things is really a side business these days and um, tourism is one of the main... Without the travellers coming through, um, you'd have to find, yeah, another way to make money. So, But um, we're very fortunate that people do stop in and say g'day. 19 to 1. That's Larissa Walker from Allen Bray Station, which is around about 230 kilometres from Kununurra, and they've had a whopping 1,000 millimetres of rain so far this wet. 19 to 1, and heading a little further south from there, the Mount Magnet area has finally got some good rain. There's been a run of below average years in this part of the world. But so far this year, Kirkalocker Station, just south of Mount Magnet, has received 84 millimetres. And that's where Blair Ridley and her partner Jared run a tourism business. So they're getting ready for a big year. The grasses have popped up, um, which just looks so unusual because the red dirt is just such a constant scenery out here. Um, And we've also got some native grasses popping up, which um, we haven't seen since we've been on the station, which is the last three years. So we've got kangaroo grass, ribbon grass popping up around the creek area. So that's really pleasing. And how are your creeks and waterways? I know they dry out fairly quickly after a rain, but is there any water hanging around still? Yeah, so we have a creek on the property not far from the homestead, the Kirkalocker Creek, and that predominantly has water in it all year round, although the last three years, late summer, it has almost dried up. Um, but this year, with that big rainfall that we had in March, it's it's full, which is fabulous to see. You know, we've got yabbies in the creek and, and the dogs take themselves off for a swim every day and, and so much bird life. So we are renowned for our birds out here at Kirkalocker and, and it's um, teeming with life at the moment after the rains. To have had 84 mils for the year so far, how does that compare with your total rainfall for last year? Well, to give you an example, the total rainfall for last year was 143 millimetres. So just in that first three months, um, you know, we're well over half of our rainfall that we had last year. And 2019, we were 115, so even even lower than 2020. So we're, we're already doing well. Um, so we've got our fingers crossed for the rest of the year. We're not sure. I have heard that it might be a dry winter. But if we can get some great rains over winter, that would be fabulous because um, we all know that that leads to wildflowers, which is 
it's an amazing um, part of this region. So we'll have our fingers crossed for more rain. You're off to a good start anyway. And you don't have stock yet. You're getting ready to reintroduce stock to the place. You're looking at bringing in some cattle. But I imagine um, this will give a pretty good seed bank if it's not going to be eaten as green grass. It will still be handy in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking down the lines of um, uh, rotational grazing for regeneration of the lands and definitely the more rain we can get, the better. And as you said, the um, the grasses are a really important part of us getting the cattle or getting stock back on the property. It hasn't been stocked since 2002. Um, so definitely the more rain, the better. And it's looking good good for that so far this year. And Blair, you open up for tourists on the 1st of April, so only a few weeks to go. Are you expecting a big year tourism-wise this year? Yeah, it's exciting with the lead-up to opening up and it does have a very um, a busy vibe to it already with the bookings we've been taking. Um, so, so we are excited to see what the year brings with people travelling within the state and, yeah, we really welcome everyone to just um, jump in their cars and plan their road trips up north and see parts of the state that they haven't seen. It's, uh, I guess, one of the positives out of COVID is that um, businesses like us are seeing an increase Blair Ridley at Kirkalocker with Joe Prendergast. Quarter to one. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Belinda Varischetti for the WA Country Hour. A national research project is trying to find out if livestock farming areas have certain periods of time without dung beetles. And this is because dung beetles play such an important role. They can get rid of dung, improve the soil nutrition and also keep fly numbers under control. The project's called the Dung Beetles Ecosystem Engineers Project and WA's Minganyu Irwin Group is taking part in it. Rural reporter Lucinda Jose joined the researchers for a day of counting the dung beetles. 75. Pretty good. How much have you been getting lately? Well, if I compare the sites I went to last week, I was getting one in a trap or two. So 75, that just shows you why Mount Adams is my favourite place. They always do so well. Jeff is fantastic. We're predominantly a cattle operation with a bit of cropping and some sheep on the side as well. I don't really see many dung beetles. But I see where they've been and evidence of, of the work they've done on, on the cow pats. You wouldn't even really know they were there, but then you'll see some cow manure and it's just been macerated by the dung beetles. And you think, wow, there's something's been going on here. Hi, I'm Rachel Mason. I'm a project officer at the Minganyu Irwin Group. And today I'm out doing dung beetle trapping. I'm really happy with this, to tell you the truth, because I was not expecting to see much. And this is actually pretty good. And so we have two bigger beetles. So these golden and I guess you call it like a greeny metallic colour, they're called um, Anitis agulis. And then these tiny little brown ones, um, I don't know the individual species, but they're Unitacellus. And so they're both dung beetles, they're both different sizes. Um, and so we've got some good numbers here. Really this trap is trying to tell us how many dung beetles will come to a pat in 24 hours because this trap's been up for 24 hours. So this is a good estimation of how many dung beetles you'll get to each cow dung out in the area in 24 hours. And that's a pretty good number. That's quite a lot. I was uh, and not anticipating that we would collect many today because this is uh, a time of year when they're less active, isn't it? Yes, yes it is. But 
also the most interesting thing I found through this project is each property, although we're in the same region, each region I'm finding different, but each property, there's quite a big um, fluctuation. So how important are they in the system? I always think that nature is the most efficient system we have in the world and the fact that a dung beetle exists in every ecosystem in the world shows you that they are essential they are continuing that recycling of nutrients and we know without it it causes problems you know if the nutrients isn't buried it normally is washed off and that can sometimes go into your riverways and then that causes algae blooms and things like that they help bury that nutrients back into your soil and it's like free fertilizer it's increasing your organic matter it helps increase your water and air infiltration they're doing a free service it's fantastic and so we realized that we didn't have dung beetles in our system and we had introduced a new type of livestock which is and their dung is nothing like our native dung and so we were so many years without dung beetles and once we introduced them the benefits we're getting from them are massive it just shows what happens when you don't bring that whole ecosystem and when you introduce a new animal and so yeah that's why they are so beneficial and we need to look after them and get more and <laughs> cherish the ones we have <laughs> and count them yes. like we are doing today. What is the, uh, I guess, more specific purpose of your work? Because we had no native dung beetles that would feed on the cattle dung that we have, we had a big gap. So in the 60s, CSIRO introduced all these new beetles based on matching climate with locations in Australia and then they released them. And they haven't done a big wide-scale study on that release since then so this is a national project and it's happening all across the south parts of um, Australia and we're trying to trap each month or each season to kind of gather information on what dung beetles we have when and how many because the real aim is you want to have enough dung beetles to deal with all the dung at the right time and then identifying what we have when allows us to identify gaps in our system so up here in the midwest our biggest gap is in summer and that's you know it's hot it's dry and the feed quality is pretty low down south their biggest gap is in winter i think it might be a bit cold so then it's trying to get an import new beetles into those areas where there's gaps because we kind of want dung beetles all year round and for us up here we really want them because summer and when we have cooler times in summer is when fly numbers just go through the roof i was out collecting dung last week and i was coming across dung pats and i would open them up and they were just full of maggots and i've been back to their neighbor just the other day and the fly numbers there now have gone through the roof and he was saying to me oh yeah these numbers these flies have just like come through the roof like there was nothing last week and I was like I know why <laughs> because dung beetles aren't there to compete with the maggots. I had not really much of an idea about dung beetles till the project started and, and the Minningwurren group have been doing all the work on them it's been fantastic because they sort of come and go in quite big numbers and, and maybe different species will come and go at different times of the year depending on the climate and stuff like that so it's really a quite an interesting little ecosystem going on down there. Would you be open to introducing new species that might cover this dry spot? Oh, most definitely. As long as all the biosecurity measures are taken and we're not going to have another issue, like a prickly pear type issue, but um, I think it'd be good if we could have consistent dung beetles all year round, most definitely. But you've got to work out where the gaps are and then what species might fit in those gaps before you can introduce anything. Does dung sitting on top of the ground cause a problem? Oh, it's only a lack of productivity because you lose that little bit of area, you know. Cows might do, I don't know, eight or ten a day and, you know, if you've got a thousand head running around, that's a quite a big area every day, which is sort of 
wasted because not much grass grows under it and I think the grass that does grow there is quite quite rank and rancid and they don't seem to like it as much. By getting rid of it and incorporating the, the dung into the soil, it you know, encourages plant growth. Jeff Cockman, who runs cattle in Western Australia's Midwest region, just between Dongara and Minganew. And if you'd like to learn more or maybe get involved in that project, just go to dungbeetles.com.au. Eight minutes to one. Cattle are worth so much money at the moment, and that's got quite a few producers taking out insurance. But I wonder if that insurance should be mandatory. Stock agent insurer Matthew Starr thinks that's not a bad idea. Well, the demand at the moment, Tom, has been uh, quite unrivaled uh, at this time because, as you say, the volatility, the, the highness of prices in the market. The, the vendors want to know that when they're selling their stock that they're going to get paid. So uh, the Delcadere or debtor insurance that the agents have ensures that if a buyer cannot pay or is insolvent or has a protracted default, then the underwriters that we use will um, settle that debt on behalf of our members. In North Queensland in particular, the live export game, very strong indeed. What are some of the inherent risks in that that insurance can, I guess, help to ameliorate? Yeah, well, obviously, when you're selling the stock and they're going to an overseas uh, market, there is a lot of volatility there. Um, They're very difficult limits to obtain from underwriters at the moment. The recent year with COVID has uh, seen a lot of underwriters being... um, you know, they've been pulled back by their European masters uh, on the, the pool of funds that they've got to uh, outlay for the limits that we tap into. Uh, exports uh, are very difficult to, to come by. Uh, we do have limits, uh, but not on all exporters. Well, look, we're sitting at about, uh, of insured sales at the moment, probably $2.5 billion. We'd probably expect that to rise under the current conditions to, you know, a lot more than that. We're getting a lot of approaches for new agents to join and in some instances the, there are some buyers that are trying to approach us as well to, to get on our insured buyer list. Just how many agents are currently members? Uh, we have approximately 160 around Australia, so we've got um, agents in every state. We are a cooperative model. That's the, that's the stock insure business uh, as a cooperative so every member has has a share in the business and what are some of the future movements you can see in the stock insurance game will there be a growing uh, trend to i guess ensure all forms of stock through different movements and different markets yeah certainly where we are now in queensland um, there's a probably a massive difference up here that uh, everyone wants to have all purchases insured we recently took over the Delcadere NCI group up here in 2018 and we certainly noticed with our southern agents that the Queensland members wanted nearly every single buyer covered. So we have branched out massively with our four underwriters that we use to apply for um, many more limits than we had previously before we came up to Queensland. Out of the blue, we're looking at a perfect storm at the moment with COVID with regards to insolvencies. Um, The government's been putting up a a fair bit of uh, cushioning to get businesses through the last 12 months, but when that gets eased off, um, the underwriters and the trade credit insurance industry in general are probably looking at a high number of 
claims. What's your concept of the idea of compulsory insurance for livestock? Is it something that you think would gather steam in the future? Yes, I do, and it has been brought up before. Um, I think there should be um, a model like you you have a renewal for a car insurance, you have compulsory third party. I think there probably should be a levy nationally, like we have other levies for the sale of our stock that come out on a, on a sale, make a national levy for the insurance of the purchaser of livestock to ensure that the agents and the farmers get their money. Solve a lot of issues at the moment, I guess, in a way, with the problems of obtaining an underwriter in some cases? That's right. I mean, we know how difficult it is. And certainly the last 12 months, we used four underwriters plus a top-up underwriter to, to cover all the transactions that we need in our turnover per year. And it's been very difficult. Um, but we'd probably still need to use all of them for a national cover. Who would need to lead the process for driving that sort of change in the industry? Well, I, I believe it probably needs to be the a federal minister or state by state could lead the charge. But um, I think at the moment it, it's something that needs to be addressed. Matthew Starr, who's an insurance agent with Stock Insure, which is a cooperative which services independent stock agencies across Australia, Catching up with Tom Major. This is the Country Hour. It's three minutes to one and to the markets now and off to Mount Barker where there was another strong cattle sale today. 1,408 sold and that's down about 100 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner is at the sale yards now and Tracy, overall, were the prices up on last week? Yes, all young cattle were up on last week. Um, heavy vealer steers weighing over 330 kilos sold from 482 to 532. Um, the medium weight steers made from 485 to 542. And light steers sold for 500 to 608 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers over 330 kilos made 420 to 522. The medium weight heifers, there was a beautiful line of 95 um, future breeder heifers made 528 cents. The lighter weight sold from 400 to 518 cents a kilo. Yearling steers sold from 452 to 526 cents. Yearling heifers from 350 to 458 cents. The grown steers weighing over 600 kilos made 338 to 378 cents. Lighter weights under 600 kilos sold for 360 to 386 cents. And under 500 kilos made 374 to 436 cents. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos made 310 to 400 cents and the heavier weight sold for 326 to 344 cents a kilo. Cows, um, a lighter yarding of cows, but the prices were up again. Um, heavy cows up 5 cents, selling for 302 to 346 cents. Medium weight cows made from 292 to 350. Stores sold from 200 to 268 and restockers picked up Cows for 232 to 296 cents a kilo. Heavy bulls over 600 kilos made from 240 to 326 cents. Medium weight bulls 322 to 378 cents, and the lightweight bullies sold to from 364 to 568 cents for the lightweights. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for going through those details. It's a minute away from the news at one. Hello, I'm Rachel Mealy. Join me for the world today. After the chaos of yesterday's launch, Australians. 
are still wondering when they'll be able to get online and book in for a COVID vaccination. Papua New Guinea's health system grapples with surging case numbers and a digital app to confirm consent before sex. New South Wales' top cop is pushing the idea, but experts say it's naive and it won't work. For those stories, join us, The World Today. Not far away, the news at one in about 20 seconds. Just repeating, Alana McTiernan has kept her portfolio of agriculture and food and regional development and is also the minister assisting the Minister for State Development for Hydrogen Industries. That's the show. Time for the news. One o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.